Amen. You may be seated. And I would ask you to take a copy of your ancient words, your Bible, that came to us through suffering and persecution, but reveals to us God's own heart. What a a privilege we have to open a book that's that old and that ancient, and because it reveals to us God's heart, it's not out of date, because our God never changes, and His Word reflects that. Philippians chapter 1 is where we will be. We will finish the chapter this morning, starting in verse 27. We'll go through verse 30. Let me read the passage for us quickly, and then we will work through it verse by verse. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit this, "...only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel." and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. If you could boil down the Christian life to one thing, if you, if you could take a scripture and say that's a great life verse right there, you might come up with a couple of options. I'm sure all of us have our, our life verse, if you will. Some might like the golden rule, do unto others as you would have others do unto you out of Matthew chapter 7. Some might go with uh, 1 Timothy 2, 2, lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Some, uh, for, for men, it might be this one, 1 Corinthians sixteen thirteen, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Those are all really good verses, good life verses. But I want you to know that this morning we've come upon a passage of Scripture, namely verse 27, that I think is a, the ultimate life ch- verse. Paul says, the essence of Christian living is this, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's it. If we can figure that one out, and if we could live that verse out, we would have a life verse that would sustain us and carry us and inspire us to live a way that glorifies God and honors Christ day in and day out. This is a a life verse. It's pretty general, but if you see in the following verses after 27, Paul actually gives us a pretty good definition. And so we're going to define what this verse means this morning by working through these four verses in Philippians chapter 1. First of all, I want to show you that this verse, verse 27, this is the essence of Christian living. The essence of Christian living. We see here he starts it with the word only. Paul is very singular in his focus here. He's very direct. It's very exclusive. He says, if there's one thing, it's only this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. I think that this is the center of the book of Philippians. I think everything that happened before this this verse and everything that happens after, Paul is writing with the purpose that what we would take heed of in these chapters would be done in such a way that we would live a, a life that is worthy 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a very general statement. Let's go get some definition. First of all, what does it mean to live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ? Well, I want you to know that a life lived for any other purpose is not worth living. It's not. A life worth living for any human being, because all people are made in the image of God and all were designed by God to worship Him, a life worth living for anyone is that that is lived in such a way that the gospel is proclaimed and honored in the life of that person before the eyes of people that look upon that person. Paul here is talking about our behavior. We are to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's talking about our behavior. And I want you to remember that as we work through this book of Philippians, this is a congregationally directed book. This book is not written to individuals. And as I've said so often, We do need to get the individual part right so that we can have a chance to get the congregational part right. But we don't need to read this as independent Christians. We need to read this as a congregation of Christians and as a congregation at Rocky Point Baptist Church. So Paul is talking about our behavior. As a church, we are to live and function in life in such a way that the gospel is honored. We're to do this together. We sing together, we give together, we pray together, we preach together, and we are doing this together. I know I'm speaking, but you're to be listening and applying and affirming the truths and testing what I'm saying. This is a together time. Yes, we're to to do this together. We're to function in life. We're to do even our Sunday mornings in such a way that the gospel of Christ is honored. Are our worship services worthy of the gospel of Christ? I think so. We pray to God, we sing to God, we give to God, we preach God. It, I want you to note here, he, he's saying it's worthy of the gospel of Christ. We need to be careful that we don't let false gospels creep in. Paul wrote the Galatians about that and warned them very stiffly. Galatians 1, 6 through 8, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And then he says this, not that there is another one, (laughs) but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. We need to make certain that the life that we're living and the gospel that we're living out is the true, pure gospel of Jesus Christ. There are plenty of false gospels that have crept into the church. There's the gospel of morality, where a church and a people define themselves by what they do do and what they don't do. That's not the gospel. That's the result of us living the gospel of Jesus Christ out, but that's not first and foremost the gospel. There are many churches that have allowed the false gospel of prosperity to creep in that says if we believe right and act right, we're going to be healthy, wealthy, and and famous. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those are false gospels. We could go on and on with false gospels. We need to make certain that we have a pure gospel that we're living out and that we are honoring the gospel of Christ In how we live, yes, as independent Christians, but more so as a congregation of believers. How how we live individually and congregationally 
does make a clear and bold statement about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It does matter how we live. Now, we live in such a way because we believe in such a way. So it starts with belief and faith and trust and obedience and submission to Jesus Christ. But then how we live out, it's got to mirror those things that we believe and those things that we say. Our manner of life as individuals will impact the way that we live as a congregation also. We can't think and act and talk like the devil independently and expect to come together as a congregation and think and act and talk like Jesus Christ. That is impossible to do. We might be able to fool one another for a brief season in time, but day in and day out, how we live independently will impact how we live congregationally. And so we need to hold these two in balance. But I do want to make certain that we walk away this morning understanding that this is a passage that is written to a congregation in Philippi and I think a congregation in Stephenville, Texas. It is hypocrisy to live differently, independently, and live in a holy way congregationally. And it cannot be sustained. Let's make certain that we're living authentically in private and when we're together. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to take this now into the deeper parts of verses 27 through 28. And I want us to understand that Paul outlines for there what it means to live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he gives us four characteristics, and you need to get these. These are very important for us as a church. There are four characteristics of a gospel-worthy congregation living out the gospel of Christ. Here they go, the first one. Let's look at this. He says, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are, number one, standing firm. Standing firm. One of the characteristics of a church living in a manner that is worthy of the gospel is that that congregation has gospel resolve. Gospel resolve. Standing firm for the gospel. We live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ when we stand firm and we do not give in to the world that would want to weaken our stance. I want you to look at the landscape of the church. And we'll just go with America because we know the American church quite well. Look at the landscape of the church and consider the state of churches who have not stood firm in the gospel. The landscape is riddled with congregations, with denominations that have not stood firm in these ancient words and the heart of God that's been communicated to us through the Scriptures. They litter the landscape. Many churches don't stand firm, rather they compromise. What if the verse read like this? I want to hear that you are compromising in one spirit, in one mind. The scripture doesn't say that. It says stand firm, remain resolved to hold the position that I've commanded you to hold through my scriptures. So in in essence, to stand firm means that we need to have a good defense We need to have a good defense and stand firm according to the Word of God. Listen to these scriptures that call us to stand firm. One might be one page back. Look in Ephesians chapter 6. I think it's one page back, if not on the pages that you're already open to. Look at verse 10 of Ephesians 6. This is a stand firm passage. Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord 
and in the strength of his might. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Look in verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Verse 14, stand therefore and put on all these pieces of armor. So over and over again, the calling to stand firm, to be strong, to withstand the schemes of the devil, to withstand the evil day that the world will bring to us every day. A healthy congregation that lives a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ has a good, strong defensive stance and remains standing firm on the principles that are found in God's ancient word. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, I read it just a minute ago. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Next Friday night, we're going to be all about that in Joshua 1 through 6. And our church is desperate for men to be that verse. Rocky Point Baptist Church needs us men to be that verse. 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. We are called over and over. I could go on for minutes here giving you other verses. We are called over and over to have a good defense, to stand firm, and to not give the ground of the gospel away. We must have a good, strong defense. Here's the second one that Paul gives us. He says that we're to stand firm. Look at how he says it next. In one spirit, with one mind. So we are to stand firm, with gospel resolve, and we are to do so with gospel unity. There's my second one, gospel unity. We live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ when we stand together as one unified body in all that we do. I want you to look at what disunity has done to the church in America. What do churches divide over? It's really astonishing. It's rare that we see massive division over truth. Some people may leave because they don't like the truth, but you don't see churches blow up because of the truth. You see churches blow up because of music preferences. You see churches blow up over money disagreements or personalities. Yes, people leave if the truth is proclaimed, but the church doesn't go under because the truth is proclaimed. Churches go under because people live sinfully together. They're not unified in one heart and one spirit. We must be a cohesive team is the concept here. One mind, one spirit. We're a cohesive team. And that unity, that teammate concept broadcasts the gospel to the world that looks in upon us. Listen to what Jesus prayed in John 17, verse 20 and 23. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that, here it is, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Unity has a purpose. The purpose of unity in a church is to broadcast the gospel to the world that's lost and doesn't believe in Jesus Christ. 
and it's to be appealing to the world, to see unity within a church. Jesus goes on, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Gospel unity is a great evangelistic tool. When the world looks at a church and sees harmony and unity and commonality and a, and a team concept, it's appealing. It makes a statement. Paul will tell us in a minute about a statement that it makes to the, to the enemies that we face. And so I want you to understand this morning that Jesus Christ, praying this in John 17, the night that he was crucified, he died so that we might be unified in him. So I want you to know that disunity in a church defames the cross and contradicts the purpose that Jesus came to die and to rise again. Number three, Paul calls for us to have what I call gospel ambition. He goes on to say, let's, let's catch up with where we are. He says, standing firm, that's the first one, in one spirit with one mind, there's the second one, here's the third one, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Striving side by side. The, the root word in the original Greek here is athlos. We get the word athlete from it. So Paul uses an athletic term here in this striving side by side. It's an athletic context. We are to live in a manner worthy of the gospel when we strive for it and advance it. In other words, we are to have a good offense. We've already said we need to have a good defense. We're to be a good team. We're also to have a good offense. We're to strive side by side as a team to move the gospel forward into the world. Striving for the faith is also uh, used in Jude as contend for the faith. Listen to this. Jude writes to the Christian church. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered to all the saints. We are to contend for the faith of Jesus Christ. That's not merely defense. That's not to huddle up and not let any sin penetrate us. We are to contend. We are to advance the gospel. We are to go out into the lost world in a unified way that's appealing to the lost world. And we are to take to the gospel to places that it's not welcome. We are to strive side by side as athletes on a team. We are worthy of the gospel of Christ when we advance Christ side by side or together. It's not an independent endeavor. We have an evangelism study on Wednesday nights because we as a church need to talk about evangelism and we as a church need to hold one another accountable to good evangelism and we as a church need to exhort one another to go out and do it and sometimes we need to go out and do it together. I did it together in partnership with a guy this last week. Side by side, we strived together to advance the gospel and to contend for the faith that was once delivered to all the saints. That's what churches do. It is not worthy of the gospel to say, 
I don't need to gather together to be a Christian. That does not work. Independent Christianity in the privacy of your own home is not how God designed it. He designed this to be the norm. He designed tonight in our homes to be the norm. He designed Wednesday night. Some churches do it on different nights of the week. For us, Wednesday night was designed by God. We are to be side by side frequently, standing firm, standing united, advancing the gospel. That's the design that God has had for the church. You cannot be side by side with people who are not present. You can't. If you have a job or a hobby or anything else that pulls you away from the gathering, you are sabotaging your ability to fulfill this calling. There are seasons in life that call us away for certain things, but they cannot be normal. We need to be here frequently, regularly. We need to be present and accounted for. If, if we are away regularly, we are sabotaging our ability to live a life worthy of the gospel in that moment in time, and it also hinders our ability to stand side by side and advance the gospel. So your presence matters in very measurable ways. I'll speak to that more in the end. The fourth one, gospel courage. So we've got gospel <clears throat> resolve, gospel unity, gospel ambition. Fourth is gospel courage. Verse 28, Paul says that these Philippians are not to be frightened in anything by their opponents. Philippi is in Macedonia. It's a Roman colony. The opponents that Paul is warning them of to not be fearful of are the Romans. For us, it's the culture. Our Rome is the secular culture that we live in, the pluralistic society that we live in. You know, it is true, we live in what's called a post-Christian society. Christianity is not popular anymore. We have plenty of opponents, and we are to not be frightened by these opponents at all. And we have a better chance of not being frightened if we are resolved to stand together, united, and if we are resolved to be striving side by side to advance the gospel into that very world of opposition. So we are worthy of the gospel of Christ when we are bold and courageous together. We must not be intimidated. We must be confident in our salvation because we are confident in the one who saved us. It's got to be true of Rocky Point Baptist Church. Hebrews 10.35, the writer says, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, in verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. We are to have faith. We are to not shrink back. We are not to throw away our confidence. We are to be bold and courageous as we live in a world that opposes the one that gives us our salvation. Our resolve, our unity, our ambition, and our courage declare two truths, Paul says, to the opponents that we are facing. Look at, look at what he says in verse 28, second sentence. 
this is a clear sign to them of their destruction. There's statement number one. But of your salvation, statement number two, and that from God. By being an opponent of the gospel, our opponents are proving their destruction. Anybody in the world that opposes the gospel of Jesus Christ is signing up for absolute destruction. And by the way, it's a destruction that never gets fully completed. The destruction is that that is from God. Jesus Christ came to save us from the wrath of God. Many people say, uh, Jesus saved me from my sins. True, but not fully true. Jesus saves me from myself. Jesus saves me from an evil world. These are true things. But, but really, the crux of the matter is, we evangelize the lost because when someone is professing faith in Jesus Christ, they are saved from the wrath of God that comes against sin against God. And so when there's opponents that oppose us, they are proving that they are signing up for destruction. They are signing up for the wrath of God. And yet the second statement is also true. By being opposed for the gospel, we are proving our salvation. When we experience opposition, persecution for faith in Jesus Christ, not for sinful behavior, but for our faith and our belief and trust in Jesus Christ, when we're persecuted for that, we are proving our salvation because we are identifying with Jesus Christ who came to suffer and to be persecuted, though he was innocent. We're proving our salvation. And we should not shrink back from that. There's a great verse in 1 Peter. We preached through this over a year, year and a half ago. 1 Peter 4, 16 and 17. I think it sums both of these up. The proving of the destruction of our opponents and the proving of our salvation as Christians. It reads like this. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Why? Because we're proving our salvation. That's a good thing. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? You hear it? Judgment begins with the household of God. We're going to prove our salvation. We are going to be judged for our beliefs and our works and our words and our thoughts. And if God the Father looks and says, I see my son's sacrifice, my son substituted for that one, my judgment is welcome home. That's my determination as the judge. But to those that oppose the gospel, the outcome for them is not such. It is destruction. It is wrath forever without end in a place called hell. And so we see here this morning that Paul is calling us as a congregation to live a life that is in, structured in such a way that the gospel of Jesus Christ is honored. Our lives need to be worthy and the gospel needs to be proclaimed. And we do this with resolve and unity and ambition and courage. There are other traits, but that's what Paul speaks to in this passage. Well, my third point this morning is this. We need to understand that believing in Christ will result in suffering for Christ. This is why we say it proves, or Paul said it, will prove our salvation. 
Believing in Christ results in suffering for Christ. Verse 29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. There we have it. Now this this salvation and this belief and this suffering, Paul says it was granted to us by God. We didn't go get it. We didn't necessarily deserve it. It was granted to us. God did not compensate us with belief. It was not owed to us. We didn't deserve it. It's called grace. God graced us with belief. He says granted. We could also say he graced us with belief. I want you to look at two verses that show that God grants belief to people. Acts chapter 11 verse 18. Peter is speaking to a Jewish crowd and he tells them the story of Gentile Christians or or Gentile pagans becoming Gentile Christians. And look at what it says. Luke writes, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. God granted the repentance to these Gentiles. They didn't just go get them some repentance. It had to be granted to them. 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And then listen to this. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. God grants it. So God, to you, Christian, God has granted you belief. And he's also granted you, because of that belief, suffering. The suffering that we experience oftentimes is not punishment. It's been granted to us by God that we might identify with our suffering Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is a privilege to identify with Jesus Christ. It's not a curse to be persecuted for believing in Him. It is a privilege because you are proving your salvation in those moments. And your opponents are proving their destruction in those moments. We have got to look at persecution rightly. It's granted to us from God only because we believe. And that's been granted to us in His Son. So we also see that he grants us suffering. He granted us belief and he grants us suffering. Do you remember what what uh, God said to Ananias when he sent him to Paul to go take the hand, put his hands on him to remove the scales from his eyes? He said, he said this, go to Paul, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer For my name's sake, he must suffer. I'm going to grant it to him that he will suffer. And it's only that after I've granted him belief. And I did that by revealing myself to him on the road to Damascus. God granted belief and God granted Paul suffering. And now Paul writes to us on this. And I think he's qualified. Matthew 5.12 is a verse that has sustained me. These last five years and perhaps for the rest of my life. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my behalf. Rejoice and be glad for they so persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
were persecuted for the name of Christ, we are to rejoice in this. Because we identify with the one who saved us. And in that identification, we are proving our salvation. One day at a time. One persecution at a time. One blow at a time. God grants us repentance that leads to a knowledge of the truth. That's belief. And that leads to life. And then God, through this believing that he's granted us, grants us to suffer. That's the truth of the Christian life. And we do it with smiles on our faces. We can do this with smiles on our faces. If we stand firm, united in one mind and one spirit, and if we strive side by side. So God's provided us with a congregation to live out our Christian faith amongst one another. And so I'm going to ask this morning as I wrap up, here's a point of application that we'll end with. Paul says that we are to stand firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the face of the faith of the gospel, and not being frightened in anything by our opponents. What does that look like then? If that's what we are to do, stand firm, united, side by side, advancing the gospel, not frightened. How do we do this? What does it look like? Well, it looks a lot like what we had read out of the book of Nehemiah. We had a people that were assembled according to their clans. And they filled in their spot, their geographic region on the rebuilding of this wall. And they had opponents, Sanballat and Tobiah and others, were opposing the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem. And what did they do? They stood firm and continued to build. And the text says that they had their work in their left hand, and their weapons in their right hand. And together they rebuilt a wall. There's a congregational concept if I've ever seen one in Old Testament Israel. We're to do the same thing. We're we're building a wall, not like the one south of here that's going to run 2,000 miles if it ever gets built. I'm not talking about that kind of wall. We're building a wall, a hedge of protection around our hearts and our souls. We're building a wall. We're a pillar and a buttress of the truth of Jesus Christ. We're building this together in our local congregation. And we're to stand side by side with this, our weapon in our right hand. And our work in our left hand. And so the Christian life looks like this. Our Bible is always in our right hand. And we're always partnered side by side with one another. Standing firm, united, advancing this word as we do the business of the kingdom of Christ. Building a figurative spiritual wall. Please don't go political on me with that. No political connotation intended at all. We're building something called the kingdom of Christ. So, what does this look like for us, practically? Right now, I would say that we are doing it. We are standing firm because we are proclaiming this. We are united because we are all quiet, listening to the Word of God being proclaimed. We all have this in our right hand. We're all going to leave here advancing the gospel. And we're all saying to one another, we're looking side by side saying, do not fear those that oppose us. 
for when they do oppose us, for the name of Jesus Christ, let's nod to one another. We're proving our salvation. We're right. We're on the right track here. Let's stay the course. And they're proving their destruction. But let's not hope that they get destroyed. Let's hope that we live in such a way that the world would look at us in our unity, in our stance, in our advancement of the gospel, and they would join us. We don't want them destroyed. They're proving that they're heading for that. Maybe they'll see an alternative. Maybe God will grant them repentance. Let's live in such a way that he could grant it to them. But if not, we're proving that we're saved, authentic Christians. And they're proving that they're not, and it's not going to work out for them. So this morning, right now, as we sing, as we pray, as we preach, we're going to give in a moment. We're standing side by side, firm, striving to take the gospel to the nations. When we give, that is a striving moment. We're giving funds that can go to the Mundhinks so that Papua New Guineans can translate the Bible from Greek and English into their own language. That's striving together with our finances. We strived together when we prayed for the lost in our community. We were together in that, and we were advancing the gospel, asking God to take through us the gospel. Let us be ambassadors, God making his appeal through us into the community. That's a standing firm together, striving side by side, united. Sunday school. We, I'm just going to be honest with you, we as a church have got to get stronger at 9 o'clock on Sunday mornings. Because what do we do there? We stand side by side, striving together in our lives, sharing troubles, sharing concerns, sharing opportunities, so that we can be a united body of people advancing the kingdom of Christ in a world that opposes it. We need to be strong tonight together in our homes. We need to be strong this Wednesday night as we gather together and look at what the scriptures call us to be about in prayer, in evangelism. RAs and GAs, youth, all of these gatherings, our college group, all of these gatherings are designed to enable us to stand united, striving side by side. That's what the church is to be about. We are not strong when we are not as numerous as we ought to be. Now listen to me here. I'm not talking about we need 500 people here. We need however many people God brings to us. We're going to proclaim the truth. We're going to live it out. We're going to do these four points. And God's going to grow a church to some degree, to some number. I'm not talking about church growth here. But I am saying however big or small God has us to be, We have to be present and accounted for. If we're a church of 200, day in and day out, we need 190 together. We do have vacations, we have sicknesses, we have things that call us apart. But the majority of us need to be together regularly if we're to image this picture that Paul was inspired to give us for the church. So however however big God would have us to be, we need to be that big every time we gather. Wednesday nights, Sunday mornings at 9 and 10, 15 and Sunday nights. That's how big we're supposed to be. But we don't need to be 200 with 90. 
That is not a picture that, that reflects what Paul has written to here. In this moment of being uh, resolved, united, ambitious, and courageous, when we gather together as God's designed it, some of us in that moment are called to preach and to teach and to counsel and to exhort. Some of us are called to pray. Some of us are called to give. Some of us are called to go to faraway places. We're going to talk about going as a, as a church and missions in the very, very near future. Not everybody can go, but everybody can pray and everybody can give. And when I say give, we're all called to give 10%. We're supposed to give our offerings to God. But some of us are blessed in such a way that we're to give beyond that to fund those that can't give so that some can go. This is how we strive together as a church. Some are able to give more than others. Some are able to go like others not. All are able to pray. And there is a striving that Rocky Point Baptist Church is about. Some are to even cook meals on Wednesday night. And some are to keep the nursery and work with our kids. All of this is standing firm with one mind and one body, one spirit, striving side by side, not being fearful of the, those that oppose us, advancing the kingdom of Christ, just like those that built the wall that Ezra wrote about in the book of Nehemiah. So what about us? How are we doing? How are we living in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ? Is that the, a true statement of us? I think that's a question that we need to be asking over the next several weeks. I don't, I, perhaps you have answers floating in your head right now, but over the next course, the course of the next few weeks, we as individuals and we congregationally need to be asking this question. Are we living as Rocky Point Baptist Church in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ? Our Christ did much for us. He didn't think equality with God was something to be grasped. I'm preaching two Sundays from now on this. He took on flesh. And in that flesh, he didn't live like we did. He lived like God intended man to live. And yet he died. He died for sins that he didn't commit. He died for our sins. And if we believe in him, if God would grant us belief in that substitution, we would be given life and suffering. He rose from the dead on the third day. It proved our salvation. The resurrection is what proves our salvation. And he's seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he is interceding for us, even as I say these words right now. He wants us to be a church that is worthy of his name. And he equips us through his word and us living his word out together. Believe in this Christ and endure much for this Christ. And let's together prove our salvation in this Christ. Father, we thank you for this instruction this morning. The call to be bold and ambitious. Father, we see in the Bible clearly we, we, we see a, a picture of a strong church. Churches are not to be weak and wimpy and soft apathetic, complacent. No, we are to be standing firm. We are to be united in this. We are to be striving. We are not to be fearful. 
We are to be confident, not shrinking back, but certain that our salvation is provided for. I pray as a result of this time together and in the coming days as we look further into this instruction that you have for our church, I pray that we would be marked as one of those churches that lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of our Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray now. Amen.